listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to, I'm probably in a rut, I'm not going to say Matthew, I'm going to say Titus. Turn in your Bibles to Titus, and the ushers are coming forward with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand, and to follow along with us as we uh, look to God's Word. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that home and read it, and it is um, a a, um, treasure to uphold, and we would love to place that in your hands, whether it's just for the service or uh, for the days ahead as you take that home and read the Word of God. book of Titus. It's towards the back end of your Bible. It is after 1st and 2nd Timothy. If you get to Philemon, which is a really tiny book, or the book of Hebrews, you've gone way too far, a little bit too far. Just turn back, and and so it's sandwiched in between 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then there's Titus, and then Philemon. Um, And so, encourage you to uh, have your Bibles open. We'll be looking at that in a few moments. And before we do that, we're going to look at one other verse, but this one will be on the screen uh, for you this morning. And, um, and, and these words were spoken 2,700 years ago. The prophet Isaiah said these words, and he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Folks, those days have come. We're living in those days, aren't we? Daily in the news, in society, in the media, even in our own lives, we just see evil being justified in various ways, being, and, and evil things being called good and right and acceptable, and then the good things being called evil. And it leaves one at times just thinking super, super helpless when it comes, helpless and hopeless when it comes to our world. Or we even look at our own lives and the struggles and the battles, the fears, the family situations, the financial crunch, the relationships, or or even take a look at the church in North America today. And in many ways we could say, oh, there's just no hope. There is no hope. Our society, our culture, everything is just so messed up. It's changing so fast. And so is the church of Jesus Christ moving away from theological and and biblical standards. There's just a huge theological and biblical drift going on in our churches today. And then you read about scandals and politics that are just ripping churches open or immorality or pride and power that are so destructive. and, And those seem to catch the headlines very sadly. And then this week I was sent this article of a church in Atlanta that had just, just recently hired a new staff member. Yeah, you, you're seeing it right, a psychic medium to their staff. They think it'd be good if they have someone on staff who can be in touch with the dead. And you're just thinking, is this reality? Is this real? This is happening in a church here. And this isn't fake news, it's real news. And, and I mean, could things just get any more bizarre in these ways? And, and, and in so many ways, the church, Christianity, Christians, we've become just a laughing stock and a joke to this world. And at times, there's good reason for us to, to be thought of in that kind of a way. And so this morning, we are looking and starting this new series, and it is all about hope. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a book, uh, wrote a letter to a, a young church planter by the name of Titus, who was on the island of Crete. And the task that Titus was given seemed probably rather hopeless. It wasn't going to be easy what he was called in to do and the task that God had for him. The book of Titus, though, is a story about hope. Hope for a messed up church, hope for a messed up people, and hope for a messed up society. And and so, and as we go through this series in in the weeks ahead, um, which evidently, Uh, this series being called Hope for the Church is just a great name for a church, isn't it? It's a great name for a little girl as we celebrated this morning in the the, uh, baby dedication. Hope is used 160 times in the Bible and it is used 
once in each chapter in this short letter that Paul wrote. It is used three times. It is used once in all three chapters. And you see, biblical hope, as I've already said, but just going on record, this is important. It's so much different than the worldly hope or how we use the word hope today. We use it today, oh, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. It's been rainy lately, and so, uh, which is strange for us, and I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. I have some plans. Or it's, I hope the Raptors have a chance of winning the NBA championship as they go against a very difficult foe in the weeks ahead. But we hope for things like that, don't we? We hope that the job works out. We hope to get married. We have all of these things, but there's a degree of uncertainty to it. But biblical hope isn't like that. Biblical hope is a confident hope. It is a sure thing. It is a done deal. And folks, there can be a sure thing, a done deal, a hope for the church when the church aligns itself, not with man's thinking and man's ways, but with the word of God. And that is why we're looking at this blueprint and it's all about hope for the church today. And you see, hope for the church also means, and and as Paul goes on to write in here, as, as we'll see as we get into this, that there's also hope for you and for me. When there's hope for the church, there's hope for you and me. And it also means that there's going to be hope for the world around us. It's going to make a difference. Now, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are considered pastoral letters or sometimes referred to as the pastoral epistles. And, and and, And Timothy and Titus were Paul's guys. They were some of his disciples. They were his, some of his key partners in ministry. Young men who he came to, 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 to trust and to, he built into their lives and entrusted them with some very large responsibilities. He trained them. He poured into them. And now he's entrusting them with some gospel ministry. They were some of his disciples, so to speak. And folks, that's the call for each one of us to make disciples, isn't it? Jesus told us that as his followers, we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are to make disciples, sharing the gospel, but seeing people who come to faith in Jesus Christ be discipled and grow up in their faith. And you think, well, that's the job of Paul, of Timothy and Titus. In fact, that's who he's writing to. No, in fact, that is the job for every one of us. We've all been commissioned. We've all been called to be preachers, to be heralders of the gospel message. It's not just for an elite team of people, not for paid staff. It is for each one of us. And yet, how many of us are actually doing that? How many of us are actually fulfilling the Great Commission? I heard one speaker talk about this, and he said that, you know, as kids, we we play a game, you know, Simon Says, you know, and Simon Says, touch your head, and so you touch your head. Simon Says, rub your stomach, and you rub your stomach. Simon Says, make disciples, and we memorize a verse, right? Right? We, we just remember, we don't do it. We just like memorize it. And, 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 and many of us here would be able to quote and we know what the Great Commission is and we might even know where the Great Commission is found in Matthew 28. And, 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 and we know this and we perhaps have memorized it and, and yet oftentimes we don't do it. We think it's someone else's job. Now, the task that Titus was called to was, was going to be very interesting and, and, and it is believed that it... Uh, them going to the island of Crete wasn't actually mentioned in the book of Acts, but it is believed that Paul and Titus went together into the Greek island, uh, in the Greek islands, and you can kind of see on on that map there, Crete is at the very bottom, uh, not at the very bottom, kind of in the middle part of the left-hand side there, that that nice little island uh, that you see. Uh, This was possibly on Paul's fourth missionary journey in between imprisonments for him. And so they went to the island of Crete and, and, and Paul moved on and, and, and he left Titus, it is believed he left Titus there to care for the churches that had popped up throughout that island. All these little house churches that had, had sprouted up through the proclamation of the word of God. And, and now, I mean, church planting in the Mediterranean, South Mediterranean, like how awesome is that? I mean, 
tough assignment, hey? It's kind of like, oh, I get to go plant a church in the Barbados or, you know, in the Bahamas somewhere or something like that. I think, oh, especially in winter, that would be a very good thing to do. Well, the island of, uh, of Crete is this Greek island. It's about 200 kilometers wide by about 35, 40 kilometers wide. And today it is a very attractive, beautiful um, holiday destination known for its tourism, its beaches, its orchards, its vineyards. Crete sounds and looks so beautiful. It's like, hey, I'm going to, you know, don't, don't go right now on Expedia or Travelocity or whatever and start booking your flight to Crete or anything like that. You know, you might want to look at that later. You might say, hey, I'd sign up for an assignment there. That, that would be uh, pretty tough, you know, maybe church on the beach or something like that, you know. But no, this was a tough and a rough assignment for Titus that he was given. You see, not only according to Greek mythology was um, Crete the birthplace of Zeus, which went with all kinds of very strange and, and bizarre religious practices and ceremonies. It was also a port city. It was a hub for pirates and for mercenary soldiers. They would hang out there looking for their next assignment. It was considered one of the most immoral places in the ancient world. It was kind of like a Las Vegas meets the pirates of the Caribbean. That's what it would have been like. That's, that's how uh, commentators would term that today. And historians say that the people in Crete, one historian said, stayed drunk continually. They were also known to be great liars. There was a term called Eucretian, which was basically, you liar. And, and so when somebody would tell you a fib or a lie or something, they would just point, you know, and, and call them a Cretan. It, it wasn't a, a great name. It wasn't something great to be known for. A historian by the name of Polypus said that, that nowhere in the ancient world were politicians more corrupt. So you have corrupt people, corrupt politicians, pirates, Las Vegas kind of craziness and chaos going on. And even their own prophets wrote this about them. You'll see this, even if you take a look in verse 12, this is what, he, what their own prophet says. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And what does, what does Paul go on to say from that? And Paul says, and this testimony is true. He says, yeah, their prophets were right. I lived there on that island for a while, and they are just, this is who they are. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And yet, God was at work in the island of Crete. God was at work saving the souls of people through the proclaimed message of the gospel, establishing churches. And the gospel is going forth in this difficult area. However, there's a lot of confusion going on in the church. Young church, early church taking place there. And, and, and there were a lot of false teachers, as you'll see as you read through the book. Many false teachers that were infiltrating this young church, teaching false doctrine and, and pro promoting very licentious living that, hey, you can go over and do what you want. You can continue lying, cheating, stealing, sleeping around, doing whatever. It doesn't matter. You'll get grace. You'll get forgiveness. And then on the other side, you had the Judaizers, these, these very strict legalists. So you had licentious uh, teachers on one side, and then you had Judy, Judaizers who, who said, hey, you need to receive Christ as your Savior, but you better keep the Old Testament law, especially when it comes to male circumcision. <laughs> Not saved unless you're circumcised. And, and so they're upholding the law on one side and holding up this wild living. And so Titus is called to come in there. And I like how one, one person um, said at one pastor that I was reading from this past week, he was called to go in there, appoint leaders, help build enduring relationship, and shoot some wolves. Wolves being false teachers. What a job for Titus to perform. And so this was the context. This hopefully helps you to understand the mess, the difficulty, the confusion of the day. And, and his job was to go in and teach sound doctrine. And to establish leaders. And encourage enduring relationships. So discipleship and growth could happen for these young Christians. And so we're going to look at the first four verses today. You can follow along as, you, as I read these here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of, faith, of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 
and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and, our, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so as we begin this series, as we start this series in this amazing letter, it is an invitation to us. It is an invitation and it speaks of true hope and confidence that we can have in our lives. Hope for the church, hope for you and me, and hope for our world. Hope abounds, but it doesn't happen automatically or easily. And so this morning, the big idea or the question that I'd love to be able to put forth to you is this. Am I aligned with God's mission? Are you aligned with God's mission? You might say, well, I think so. And like, where are you going? Well, we're going to talk, take a little look at that. But that's an important thing we need to, to consider. Are we aligned with God's mission? Either we are or we're not. There's really no middle ground here. It's not, well, I kind of am. Or kinda, no, you're either hot or you're cold. There's no, no middle ground in this, no lukewarmness that we see in, in the word of God. We make things middle of the road. We make things lukewarm, but God sees things very black and white, very hot or cold. Either we're in or out. Either we're about our mission or we're about God's mission. Can't have it both ways. And so here are three ways that we can check. We can check our heart. We can check our lives to see if we are truly aligned with God's mission. The first one is, it begins with an understanding that, of having an encounter and an understanding our identity. So aligning with God's mission is about, it begins with an encounter and understanding our identity. Look at what it says here, first verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul self-identifies himself here right at the start. He says, Paul, and this is the way that they would write letters in those days. He, you would always introduce yourself at the beginning because they had scrolls. And in order to roll out a scroll and look, oh, who's this from? And might as well tell you right from the start. Hey, this is Paul. And so he's identifying himself here. And I mean, Paul, he, he says, a servant of God, and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, I mean, he had quite... A life, didn't he? He had quite a resume. He could have self-identified in all kinds of different ways. He could have called himself a missionary, pastor, evangelist, church planner, Bible writer, miracle man. He had quite the experiences, quite the accomplishments. In, in Acts 19, I mean, he had the power, didn't he? You read in Acts chapter 19 where it even says that God did extraordinary miracles through him, that even handkerchiefs that had touched him would then be taken to someone who was sick and they would be healed or an evil spirit would, would leave them. Like even the handkerchief had power had, that was flowing out of him. I mean, this guy had it. And yet, we also realize that he was this powerful, mighty man of God, but we also know and realize that Paul had a very checkered past. In Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8, we see that Paul, at then his name was Saul, was ravaging, persecuting, trying to destroy the Christians in the early church. Dragging them out of their homes. They would be gathering together for a prayer meeting or a family would be gathered in their home eating a meal or in the middle of the night. And he had the authority that was entrusted to him that he could take himself or go in with soldiers and they could drag them out and, and haul people into prison. In fact, he was there when the very first martyr was stoned, when Stephen was stoned to death. Paul, we don't know for sure. It doesn't seem he was, was throwing stones, but he was holding the coats of those that were throwing the stones, we read. And then in Acts chapter 9, however, something changed. He had an encounter. He had religion. He had duty. He had this great... Um, history and, and, and heritage that he had been brought up in religion, but he didn't know Christ. But in Acts chapter 9, he encountered the living Christ. He had a personal encounter and he was a changed man. And you can read that. I encourage you to read that and remember the story of how this persecutor turned follower of Christ. Could you imagine the first time that Paul would have showed up in, in, in church on a Sunday morning and nice little, you know, house gathering in an upper room and maybe there's 20 or 30 or 40 people. We don't know how many people would have been in there and all of a sudden he shows up. What people would have been thinking. And it's just like, is this a trick? What's going on? Is he, when I, <laughs> there's no way I'm closing my eyes when it comes to prayer. 
I'm going to keep an eye on him. They probably had security and bouncer detail like, hey, that's, that's Saul. This is a church persecutor. Yeah, we've heard something's happened, but has it really happened? We're, we're not sure how, you know, or maybe they had a prayer night in potluck and he brings in a casserole. And it's like, I'm not eating that casserole. Who knows what he spiked it with? You know, there could be something not good. And so, you know, I mean, they would have no doubt have been on edge wondering what really happened. Has he really changed or is he just trying to hook us and, 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 and then he'll kill us or throw us in a prison? Has, was he truly a changed man? Or maybe he was sitting there as the people were worshiping and as people were sharing the word of God as God's word was being proclaimed and he sat there and thought, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a mess up. Look at my past. Look at what I've done. Look at the people I've hurt. Perhaps he entered into a gathering where there was family members that he had personally persecuted or oversaw their death. Think of the reconciliation that needed and no doubt did did take place. And so oftentimes, we can be like a Paul. We might be sitting in church this morning and think, I've got a past. <laughs> or even my present, it's not so good. Think, do I even belong here? Such a loser. Such a failure. My past my battles, the level of struggle even going on, even as I sit here right now, God can't or he won't forgive me. Folks, if you're hearing that today, that's a lie. That's a lie from the devil. Don't believe it. There is no sin, nothing in your past that God's grace is not deeper than. And there is forgiveness and there is his grace and mercy that is available. And when that is applied to our lives, we can come to know the peace of God. They say that the church is full of hypocrites. And, and, and I would answer that, you're right, it is. In fact, you're looking at one here this morning. Just ask my family. I'm still a work in progress. None of us are perfect how I desire to live my life and the desire to have the things come out of my mouth and the actions by my hands or by my life or whatever it might be. Times often, more than you would know, don't align with who I want and desire to be. We're all a work in progress. None of us are perfect. And initially, as we have an encounter with Jesus Christ, we need to continue to keep encountering him daily for forgiveness and for his mercy and for his grace in our lives. And so aligning with God's mission starts with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Have you had that? Have you done that? And it starts with an understanding. It starts with some knowledge, some information that, that is so important. And it's knowing and understanding. This is the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, write it down. This is it. This is, this is so clear and it's so important. And here it is that God is holy. He is supreme. He is powerful and mighty. He is perfect. And none of us are. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God, God's glory, uh, short of God's standard. And so God is holy. We are sinful. And that sin causes a separation, a chasm between us and God that if it is not changed, if, we, if that chasm is not filled in, if it is not bridged, it will mean a life of despair here on this earth. You will not know the peace of God and in the end you will not realize the hope of eternal life, the confident hope of eternal life in heaven. Our sins separate us from God. And there must be a punishment for our sin. But God, being rich in his mercy and his love, sent his one and only son to this earth who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death on the cross for you and for me, taking the punishment and the wrath that we deserve upon himself. And in exchange for our sin that he takes upon himself, he gives us his grace, his forgiveness, his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. 
And that happens, that transfer takes place when we say enough is enough. I turn from my sin. God, I confess I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your standard and I turn from my agenda and I want to live for you, God. And we do this by faith. We receive him as our Lord, as our Savior by faith. And what happens in a moment, in an instant, when we call out to God, however you do so, in prayer, verbally, in your heart, it may take a process, it may take time as you are thinking and wrestling through that, but when you finally lay it down and say, God, I'm yours, I'm all in, come into my life, his Holy Spirit comes in and fills us with his power, his presence. And daily, we desire to continue to keep living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We continue to ask God to fill us and to empower us and to strengthen us. It's not just one and done. This is the start of a new relationship of getting to know him and getting to, to, to grow in him and understand his word and obey his word and love his word and love his people and worship him. And, and I mean, maybe you're here today and You've heard the gospel message. I mean, you've grown up in church. You've heard this time and time again. In fact, you could repeat it. In fact, you could, and you have, and, and maybe you could write it out, or you could, you know, make this statement, but, but in your heart, you truly have never surrendered your life to him. The gospel is good news. It will save you. You may have prayed some prayer at a vacation Bible school, and I don't want to dismiss that prayer, but perhaps it was in order to get a badge or a prize, or you got to leave and go out and play in the park, so you prayed a prayer, or, you know, it was just like, oh, I felt bad, and so I prayed this prayer, and now, you know, I'm one, and I'm done. It's good. But you're sitting here today, years later, and you're saying, I'm like dead on the inside. I mean, I go through the motions. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? But on the inside, I'm dead. Your life is all about you and your agenda, and you've been running the race hard. And yeah, you've had some thrills, and you've had a few spills, but but on the inside, it's just like, it's missing. And you're dead inside, and... And I can tell you, if that's where you're feeling today, if that's where you've been at for some period of time, I have to tell you, I am concerned for your soul. I am. See, quite possibly, maybe you never came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You've never had a desire to, to, to live for him or to follow his word. I mean, to do some of the discipline, sure, but it, it, it's more of just kind of outside. Well, I guess I should do this, and I was told by my mentor I should do this and that, and but from the inside, it's an inner desire, a change from the inside out. Maybe you've responded uh, in the past out of guilt or emotion, but not surrender, out of love for what Christ has done. Get an idea that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but through believing in Christ, he makes us alive. He takes what is dead and he makes it alive. He takes a heart that is cold, stoned, heart of stone, and he makes it into a heart of flesh where we desire to worship him and live for him. Perhaps you've never grasped the depth of your sin or the holiness of God and encourage you to to dig into that and to to grow in that. And and if you are in Christ, that you've lived for him, you committed your life to him, but sin and the struggle has been full throttle lately and it feels more like you're losing rather than winning, you must remember you have been redeemed, you have been bought, you have been purchased by, by Christ and he saved you and And you need to keep coming back daily, daily, daily. We have to keep coming back to the gospel that reminds us that, yes, we are sinful, that we are broken, we are messed up, but by God's grace, we're progressing and and we confess those areas and we have brothers and sisters around us to hold us accountable. We're in the word of God, allowing it to, to teach us and to transform us. I like what John Newton wrote, the author of Amazing Grace. He said this, I'm not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. It takes time. It's a process. Is there that progression of godliness in your life? It starts with aligning with God's mission, starting with that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Have you done that? 
And it's then, if having done that, it's also understanding then our identity. So we see Paul, you're saying, oh man, Melvin, if it took us 11 months to get through that last series of three uh, weeks, we've gone through one word and we spent all this time on one word, the word Paul, looking at the life, it's important, we'll go a little faster today. But it's also understanding our identity. How does he describe himself? Verse one, Paul, a servant of God. See, now we, we've moved on to four words in, in this book so far. We're really rolling. That word servant means doulos or bond slave, some translations will say. I encourage you to write down the word bond slave because servant just sounds kind of neat and easy. Bond slave carries a little bit more meaning to it. And that's one thing about the Greek language that in English we have, uh, they have many words, we have few words. And and uh, of all the ways Paul could have identified himself, remember, uh, how does he identify himself? He, he could have been identified as Saul, the f- Paul, the former terrorist Saul, who has a great salvation story. I'll come speak at your men's breakfast anytime. You know, I'll go on a speaking traveling tour and just share my story of the great light. No, he doesn't identify as Paul, the former terrorist. He, he chooses the identity as a servant. He could have used, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was a very prestigious Jewish tribe. Or he could have used Paul, the student, the protege of Gamaliel. Very well known. That's Harvard-like kind of training he received as, as a young guy growing up. He could have been called Paul, a church planter, or missionary, or jailbreaker, or miracle man, or whatever. No, he uses the word servant, bond slave, doulos. And this language comes from Deuteronomy 15. You can go and you can read this this, this next week. I encourage you to do so. This is quite a thing. You see, what could happen, in, this was in the law of Moses, and, and, and it's very fascinating and painful, but also pretty cool, what takes place, is that a, a Hebrew could have another Hebrew as a slave. In fact, they could sell themselves into slavery, or they could sell their child into slavery. And you say, that's evil, that's rotten. Well, no, it's more, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to come work for you. I will be your bond slave. I will be your bond servant. I will be your slave and you will pay this certain amount or you will take care of my family or whatever it is. It's I'm in your debt. So, so a person would be in the debt of their owner. And so these owners, the Hebrews would have other Hebrews that would be their slaves, their servants. But as requirement in the law of Moses, after six years, it was required to release them from being your slave. However, if it was a situation where that slave, where that bond slave said, you know what, my master loves me. My master is amazing. My master is looking out for my best interest. He takes good care of me. He takes good care of my family. In fact, you know what? I want to be his bond slave forever. And so you know what he does? There's this interesting kind of ceremony that goes on. They go to the town gate. And, and the, the owner, the boss, takes a hammer and an awl, and, and he would put his ear against the town gate, kind of like this, and he would take that awl, and he would drive it through his ear and push it right through, probably put an earring in it. God's word doesn't tell us that, but more than likely, he would. He wouldn't leave him there. He wouldn't leave his ear there or anything, but he would just use that, and the blood would mark the spot, would forever be a reminder that, hey, I am yours. I am your servant. I am your bond slave because I know that you love me. I know that you're going to take care of me and I just love working for you. What an interesting description that Paul now uses. Paul says, I'm a bond slave. Romans 6, write down this because that's a great passage to study in light of Deuteronomy 15 because you end up seeing that Paul says that when When Christ is my identity, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but now I am a bond slave. I am a servant of righteousness. I'm a slave of righteousness. And so Paul, he says, I'm a servant. I'm a bond slave. You say, and he's basically saying, don't feel sorry for me. I'm having the time of my life. This is awesome. Serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so aligning with God's mission is, begins with an encounter. Have you had an encounter with Jesus Christ? And where is your identity today? 
Are you a servant, a bond slave, ready to obey and live for your master because you know that he has nothing but your good interest in mind? Second of all, aligning with God's mission means knowing we have a message to proclaim and to live. Look at it as it continues in verse 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Don't you love the way that Paul throws that in there? Oh, and by the way, our God, he never lies. Remember, a whole society built on lying? He's like, you can go to the bank on this. Our God never lies. There is hope. There is a hope for eternal life. And and our God, he's he's not going to lie to you. He's the real deal. And so he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in the last part of of verse 3, he says, preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. So he says, I'm an apostle as well. He's a servant, apostle. Apostle means messenger, someone who has been sent forth, someone who has been commissioned to preach the gospel, to herald the good news. And so here he is, I'm a servant of God, and I'm heralding this message that I've been entrusted, and I've been commanded this important message to give to you, to help as I preach the gospel, to activate the faith of the elect, the ones that God has chosen, as he's telling us here in verse 2. And so yes, Paul is a preacher, And he's writing to a church planter who is no doubt another preacher. And what are church planters' jobs and Paul's job to do? Preach the gospel. Preach the word. But all of us, as I've already said, are commissioned and we've been called to do that. To proclaim, to herald, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel must be proclaimed. People will not come to faith in Jesus Christ through the pitter-patter of rain falling down on their head as they're out for a walk. They're not going to come to faith in Jesus. They need to hear the word of God proclaimed. Romans 10 talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That doesn't mean that their feet are beautiful. Mine sure aren't. Jesus, uh, Charlotte often refers to my feet as Jesus' feet because they look like they've been walking a dirty trail for a very long time, kind of tired and worn out and ugly. He's not saying you have to have beautiful feet to share the gospel. It means those who share the gospel have beautiful feet because they're carrying this amazing, beautiful, amazing message. And we've all been called to do that. You see, it's important that we share the gospel, not just in our actions, not just in our nice deeds. It's got to be with our lips, our lives along with our lips to be ready to share the gospel, to share what Christ has done in us. You see, however, our message, though, is null and void. And this is where the church has become so hopeless in so many different ways. Our message becomes null and void and is actually hindered hindered when godliness is missing. And look at what Paul, he, he, he talks about here. He says, a knowledge that leads to godliness. Paul is saying that a knowledge of the truth as we grow in our knowledge and our understanding and application of God's word, we grow in godliness. You see, it's not just about praying a prayer about our salvation and our justification. It's about our sanctification, about continuing to grow in him and become more and more Christ-like. And if the message of Jesus Christ has impacted your life, if if your heart has been turned towards him and you've received him as your Lord and your Savior, you've encountered Jesus Christ, it will change you. It's impossible to be a believer in Christ, a, a genuine believer, and not be changed. And not to have a hunger and desire to want to follow the Lord. And, 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 and God's word talks about fruit that ought to come from our lives over time. As we walk and as we grow in him. And so our affections change. The way we love changes. The things we love changes. We forgive more and more freely. We give of ourselves differently for a different reason and a different purpose, not out of guilt, but out of his grace and out of his mercy. And people look at you over the weeks and the months and, and, and the years and the service, what's, what's happening? You're changing. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There's something different happening in your life. You see, godliness isn't a guilt trip and just trying to do good. It's a grace trip. It's a process. 
And it's not a pursuit to earn God's love. We pursue godliness because we have God's love. But we need training. We need teaching. We need mentoring. We need discipling. And that's what Paul is saying is we grow in the knowledge of the truth. And that's what he's going to be setting up here. He's going to be setting up centers. He's going to be setting churches here with strong leadership where there's mentoring, where there's strong relationships being forged so discipleship can happen and growth can happen and challenge one another towards godliness. And Paul is saying that as our knowledge of the truth grows, so does our godliness. As we are exposed to the word of God through, reaching, through, through reading it, through, through the proclamation of God's word, through teaching, through memorizing, through discussing it with others, it starts to change who we are. We were reading this morning at the Fuel Up prayer time, we were reading from, from, from Ephesians, and it talks about the things that we are to, to take off and the things that we are to put on as believers in Christ. You read that and say, okay, have nothing to do with these areas, but instead pursue these areas. Okay, God help me to do that. And he will through the power of the Holy Spirit, not just through discipline is needed, but it's not like through just running and trying harder. The Holy Spirit aligns with the Spirit. Our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us aligns with God's word and changes us. But life is hard. The battle and the struggles are real and we're all that work in progress. But God's word is that blueprint for our lives on how we are to build our lives, build our church, build our families, build your business. Are you building it for yourself? Are you building it on man's principles? Or are you building it on the principles of God's word? The battles are real and we need one another. But Paul says, hey, we have this hope though. Remember that even how hard, how difficult it is, we have a guaranteed hope. That hope of eternal life, and, and no one's taken, that's no lie, that's no lie, he's saying it's going to happen. And one day, I love that old hymn that goes, one day, it, it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of his sweet face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. We have a message to proclaim. We have the living hope of heaven. But we have this message to proclaim. Is your life sending what kind of a message? Your life is going to be the very first Bible some people will ever read. They're going to see your life. And then when they hear your lips, is it going to align together with the faith that you say you possess? Again, none of us are perfect. One of the greatest ways that, that you can show your faith is when you admit to unsaved loved ones, family members, or coworkers, or neighbors, say, hey, I'm sorry, I really messed up. That, that was just not right. That was not acceptable. When they see your humility, not all the good things you are doing, but they see also the mess-ups and the failures in our lives. And so... Someone who is growing and changing, becoming more Christ-like is experiencing the Spirit's power at work in our lives. And as we share the gospel, as people see it and as they hear it in our lives, he does this changing work in and through us. And then thirdly, aligning with God's mission involves shouldering the work with God's people. Look in verse 4, it says, To Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, we don't know a lot about Titus. He's mentioned, I think, 12 or 13 times, and sometimes there's a reference where we assume that he was a part of, of a certain uh, function that took place. But he's only mentioned, really, you know, like a dozen times. But what we learn about this young man is significant. It's amazing. Now, he, he was under Paul's ministry. He probably came to faith under Paul's preaching. And Paul, no doubt, discipled him, took him under his wing. Why? Because he was a, a guy who was eager to learn. Paul didn't have to chase him down. He was there. He was eager. He was, he, he was, he was zealous. And I'm not making this up. I'm not, we see this through the references that we see about him. He joined Paul in the work Paul did not cater to, to his agenda. He got on God's agenda along with Paul and said, let's go. And as they went along, he learned as he watched and as Paul built into his life. You see, he was a willing servant. He was teachable. He was dependable. He was trustworthy. Willing to be put into very tough and highly sensitive situations. And he did it, as we find out, and even initiated some of those situations. And he did it with zeal 
and fervency in his work. He had some stuff against him in his past. He was uncircumcised. For some people, that was a big deal. For the Judaizers, he was a Greek by birth. He wasn't a Jew. Again, could have been a strike against him. He didn't stop. He continued to serve the Lord as the Lord called him to serve and as Paul assigned him his work. In Acts 15, he was brought before the Jerusalem council. He was one of the ones brought. And, and Paul used him as an example. There was this big fight going on within the church as the Judaizers are saying, in order for a person to be truly saved, you also have to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law. But circumcision, that's a big deal. And Paul, as he's talking, turns to Titus and to others and say, look at these genuine believers, uncircumcised Greeks they are, and look at the spirit of God that is upon them. And it was used to help silence the crowd. Again, later on, Paul wrote a very tough letter to the church in Corinth, which was one messed up church, and Titus had to deliver the letter. But it wasn't like, here's the letter and then run. He had to read the letter and then no doubt explain the letter. At times like, well, what did Paul mean when he said that we should run from sexual immorality or we should throw that person out of there? What did he mean by that? And so he was put into some tough situations and and then even he collected an offering while he was there. He said, hey, the church in Jerusalem, come on, you folks. Let's take an offering for the church in Jerusalem. They're struggling. They're being persecuted. Let's go. Let's go help them out. And so we see this guy eager to serve the Lord, entrusted with great responsibility. And so now Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and he's telling him, inviting him to shoulder the work of ministry. He says, your job now is take what I've been teaching you and now entrust and appoint leaders within the church. See to it that there's healthy, enduring relationships happening within the life of the church. That discipleship is taking place. And so, Titus, this is going to involve you taking other disciples and, and, and discipling them and helping them and, 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 and guiding them. And so we see this cycle continues. The lost get saved, the saved get, gets matured and growing in godliness. And the churches get planted and false teachers get disarmed. And the gospel goes forth and more people respond to the gospel. And more churches, as, as more are discipled, more churches are planted. And see, there's hope. And there was hope for this society in Crete because of the gospel and because of faithful people willing to shoulder the work, but involves commitment, sacrifice, time devoted to growing in godliness, devoted to learning and, and, and coming under the instruction of others and taking others under our wings. It's not easy, it isn't, but it's worth it. Serving the Lord, shouldering the work of ministry is hard. It's hard work, isn't it? Many of you would know that. You've served the Lord faithfully for many years. It's not easy. And oftentimes the rewards here on this earth may seem very tiny or there may not be any, but we're not working for earthly rewards anyways, are we? It's for that eternal reward of hearing our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Friday afternoon as I was working on this message, I was texting another couple that are planting a church here in Western Canada and they were discouraged. They're in another city uh, here in the West and that afternoon, the pastor had met with the coordinator of their set-up and take-down. They're a set-up and take-down church as well. And he was pretty discouraged because the coordinator just up and quit on him. He said, I'm not doing this anymore because I'm tired of the lack of commitment of people. And as they were texting me, they said, but we did kind of chuckle and kind of laugh that here's a guy who's quitting because of others aren't committed and his commitment is based on the commitment of others and our commitment ultimately is to be to our Lord, Right? And then they reminded me of the time when I told them about how someone left uh, a church where, where I was at that, um, that up and quit and said, we're leaving the church just so you know. Uh, we like it. We uh, like what you're teaching. We like everything. But we're just concerned you're going to burn yourself out, so we're leaving. And I was like, really? Like, am I getting punked? Like, seriously, that's... Anyways, it's hard. It can be lonely. It can be discouraging. And it was a reminder as I was sitting in my office, and here's a picture of my office, and I took it Friday afternoon of kind of the mess of uh, life and working on sermons Friday afternoon and into the weekend. But I told them what was sitting up on the top right-hand corner there in the picture, and zoom in a little bit, is 
that half shovel. There's a story behind it. I won't go into it, but it's a reminder to me today that never to give a half a shovel to what God has called you to do. Half a shovel gets half shovel results, but a full shovel gets full shovel results when we serve and as we shoulder the work of the Lord. We roll up our sleeves and serve the Lord shoulder to shoulder with others. It's hard work, but it's rewarding work. It's eternal work. It's kingdom work. Are you serving the Lord for the sake of others? Are you serving the Lord to get noticed or not serving the Lord at all? We don't serve when it's just easy or convenient or people will take notice, but when it's hard, when it's the dirtiest, when it's the menial areas. See, we want to be a gospel-soaked people who are part of a gospel-soaked, hope-filled church who serve and shoulder the work together as we're growing in godliness and making mistakes and learning and growing together and being challenged and loving and caring for one another, sometimes a hard word and sometimes it's an encouraging word. And as we continue on through, uh, through the process of sanctification together, and we must do it together. Shouldering the work of the Lord arm in arm. Shouldering the work of the Lord with God's people. And everyone plays a part. Everyone. And believe it or not, your part in, in this isn't just showing up for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning and being ministered to and then going home and, mm, it's okay. It's okay today. There's some ways that worship could have been improved. The sermon got a little lengthy or a little too close, you know, whatever. And, you know, or set up that could have been a little more, No. That's not your spiritual gift. It's about serving one another in mutual ministry, shouldering the, Lord, shouldering the load with the work of others in the trenches for the glory of God. That's what Paul did. That's what he entrusted to Timothy and now to Titus. And we do it for the glory of the Lord and for the hope that is there. I trust that you are shouldering the load for the gospel work, the kingdom work. There's many opportunities to serve locally here in this church. I trust that you are shouldering the load in, in preaching and sharing the gospel, the good news, that you're shouldering the Lord, load in discipleship and learning and then also taking others along with you. And so as we wrap this up this morning, aligning with God's mission, have you been aligned with him through an encounter with Jesus Christ? That's the most important. If so, you can receive him today. And do you understand who your identity is? Your identity is not entrepreneur, worship leader, doctor, lawyer, referee, uh, retiree, business person, student, pastor. That, that, that's not your ultimate title. Our ultimate title, servant, is a bond slave. And then I wonder who needs to hear the message around you. Are you growing in godliness? Are you shouldering the work of God's people? Let's pray together. God, we have your blueprint here for your church. And when it's taken seriously and your people, your members, the members of your body align together and say, yes, we're in. Yes, we're going to take your word seriously and we desire to live it out through our lives, through our lips. We're not going to be nominal Christians, name only. We're going to, we're going to live it. We're going to sacrifice for it. We may struggle and we will experience setbacks and discouragements along the way. That's a guarantee and that's actually a promise. And yet we have an enduring presence and a power that is with us through your word and by your spirit and through the body of Christ. And may this be a church that is truly one that bears its name. A confident hope. Not in because of the pastors or the leaders or because of the people that are a part of this, but because of God who is the God of hope. And so we worship you and we align our lives with you and for you today. In your name, Jesus, we pray.